Welcome to another episode of Becoming Unfuckwithable with your host, Mindy Harley. Warning, listening to this podcast might cause you to shatter your limited beliefs, recognize your potential, and motivate you to be the best you can be. Other side effects may include, but not limited, to grabbing life by the balls, taking no crap from anyone, becoming an unstoppable force at various aha moments to get you thinking outside the box. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Becoming Unfuckwithable. We're your hosts, Mindy. And Sean Harley. And we've got an incredible guest for you guys today. We are so excited to have Frank Elbow on the show. Frank and I both share something in common. We're both from Winnipeg. And Frank is an architectural historian. He's an author. And he also specializes in architecture, Freemasonry, and the Western esoteric tradition. Frank. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, I'm delighted to be here. And uh, we both have an affinity with Winnipeg. So perhaps our mysterious journey and conversation could begin there. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. You know, and we, we had crossed paths in Winnipeg. We share some mutual friends. And, you know, I was interested in the esoteric and everything as a, as a young child with pyramid and Greek mythology. And that was all I could consume. And then it kind of got lost. And then, you know, about two, three years ago, it kind of came into our life again. And as we were kind of going down our discoveries, all of a sudden I had this thing pop in my head with the Hermetic Code, your book that you had authored. And I went, holy shit, I know this guy. And I, I right away had to go, I had to go and look up. I was like, wait a second. Like, it was just like a locked away memory that all of a sudden came up. And I was like, I've met the author of this book. I know who this is. And of course, are back and forth trying to uh, to connect and finally get you on the show, and it's finally happened today. But yeah, you know that was, you know, again, I've I've haven't obviously dived into the esoteric knowledge like you have, but tell our listeners a little bit about your story and your journey of how things came to be. Sure thing. I, I was formally trained as an architectural historian, and uh, part of that journey has been one to um, well, my passion is really to read our built environment, like a book. Our cities, our public spaces, gardens, cemeteries are really uh, journeys of discovery, but they are uh, largely unread. We are like passive participants in the environment, which is so important uh, to us and our well-being. Winston Churchill once said that we build our buildings and then our buildings build us. And I never expected that I would become an architectural historian. I mean, what, what exactly is that? Um, but it happened by sheer accident when uh, perhaps it's close to 20 years now, I spotted two recumbent Egyptian sphinxes on the roof of the Manitoba Legislative Building, a building that I looked at uh, and is very endearing to anybody from Manitoba uh, my whole life. Uh, the glistening golden boy at the top uh, immediately attracts our attention. But what is largely unknown is that at the very front, the, the facade, the front facade, there are these two Egyptian sphinxes. And one day I just parked my car, looked up and tried to answer the, the riddle of the sphinx. It doesn't get any more, I guess, you know, classically romantic than that um, is, you know, uh, uh, the age old uh, mystery of the sphinx. So there they are. And that one uh, glance changed my life forever. Because what I hadn't known uh, and 
perhaps neither did the public for 100 years, is that the um, uh, exquisite architect of the building had placed a series of breadcrumbs, clues, esoteric clues, laden throughout the building, hoping that somebody would figure it out. And sort of in the same way that Quentin Tarantino might make a reference to a spaghetti Western or Martin Scorsese will do an illusion with light and shadow, uh, 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 architects are motivated by placing um, uh, uh, symbols, epigrams, uh, uh, elements of design that they're hoping somebody will pick up on. And um, in this case, the architect did that uh, in, in, in a masterful way, is that uh, it, the, the building was a, a, a cryptex of, of hidden messages waiting to be discovered. Wow. Yeah. That's unbelievable. You're yeah. probably thinking at that time, before you delve into this, what is a Sphinx doing in Manitoba, Canada here? <laughs> exactly. I, I, it's, it, it, that, the question was as simple as that. What on earth is a Sphinx doing on the roof of the Manitoba Ledge? Yeah. And, um, and that, I mean, what, what more uh, um, enchanting way to allure your audience? And, mm. uh, and, that was really just the beginning. So the, um, uh, throughout the building uh, are a series of other very curious uh, uh, clues, clues, puzzles that <laughs> are not meant to be there, and yet they are. And so this particular architect, um, uh, I, I can't believe I spent uh, three graduate degrees in 10 years trying to get in the mind of a dead British architect, but <laughs> uh, that's what the Sphinx did for me. It was... Uh, um, you know, a, um, a an attraction from the past. Um, so, so what's really odd is when I was doing my archival research and I'd spent about the first five years uh, looking at it, thinking I must be nuts. Like surely somebody else has seen these same things. The fact that there is a- That's the, um, that's the question, right? <laughs> yeah, of, of course. That, I, I can't be the only one that noticed that there's a sphinx here or that everything in the building is aligned by the number 13, uh, 13 stairs, 13 lights, 13 uh, doors, the, the height of the golden boys, 13 feet, the, height, the, the, got, the width of the bison are 13 feet. Um, and sorry, go ahead. And you've got Medusa and these other characters there too, right? Oh, exactly. And, and uh, uh, I've tended to look at them as um, way showers, uh, uh, articles of attraction, like the, um, like a mermaid, you know, an architectural mermaid saying, ooh, come hither. And, um, and, and ultimately, after uh, this odyssey of discovery and enchantment encoded in the building, I feel very confidently that we could, we have solved the puzzle is that um, uh, there are four unique uh, arcane elements of design that uh, rule the building's architecture. So that on the surface, it looks like a, a classical stately building similar to um, uh, other, you know, a classical library or uh, a town hall, a bank, but that is uh, merely the facade is that a woven throat is a language of architecture. And this language of architecture is very much part of the philosophy and meaning of Freemasonry of which this architect was a member. So I became so obsessed with this architect that I, <laughs> I even joined the mysterious order thinking maybe perhaps it's in the ritual 
of uh, of Freemasonry that it, uh, um, I could see a, a a more nuanced way of uh, looking at the building and and uh, that ended up with uh, my uh, uh, decipherment of what's known as the Brangwen mural. Um, if you've ever been to the Manitoba Legislative Building, you you send up the Grand Staircase Hall. There is a rotunda, beautifully uh, um, uh, illustrated rotunda, and directly across from you, in the center of the building, is this uh, um, exquisite mural that represents Canada's efforts in the First World War. And um, if you were to overlay that image over what's known as the entered apprentice right into Freemasonry, it's all right there, like the, the, the central figure with his chest exposed, being uh, uh, escorted by, um, uh, uh, I think it's called the master deacon or the, the uh, senior deacon, and uh, uh, several ele elements there that if you were just to superimpose both images, you'd think, this is so obvious. It's sort of like, um, <laughs> y you know, those, um, uh, they were kind of popular in I think the nineties or something. They're like those 3d pixelated puzzles that somebody says, like, there's really two dolphins, you know, jumping out and you just can't see it. And then suddenly yeah. your eyes peer in and, and it's unmistakable. That's exactly yeah. what is embedded with within, uh, the Manitoba ledge in its entirety is something like that. Mm. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, we were really uh, disappointed we weren't able to catch one of your tours while you were giving <laughs> tours there yet. Yeah. Have you like trained anybody else to like carry on your legacy of that, or you got some? I, I, I believe there. Yeah. I, um, well, thank you for that. It's. Um, I, I believe the uh, um, Heartland Travel does a uh, a tour of the building. The um, uh, uh, the, the head of that is his name is Don Finkbeiner, and he was at my side as a kind of acolyte, as it were, okay. for ten years. And I would give these tours in the summer, and each each summer, I thought, okay, this is the last time I'm doing these tours. There's like, clearly everybody has seen enough, um, but it was like each year up until uh, pre-COVID, we were um, you know selling out more and more, and it was. Um, Wow. Uh, I didn't just didn't realize it. It had enchanted so much the public psyche. Yeah, yeah. yeah you woke them all up to it, I suppose. So, what would mm -hmm. be some of your favorite hidden aspects and, and messages uh, within the Manitoba Ledge that kind of just stand out for you a little bit more? That kind of have a special meaning to you? Okay. Um, well, I I I, I treat it in its entirety, and maybe it might be be good to look at that. Um, uh, within context. So uh, this architect, Frank Worthington Simon, he had spent his life in the recovery of what he called the lost principles of ancient architecture, the notion that there was a hidden language and meaning to classical forms, and that by virtue of using and and and, and imbuing this language of, of, of architecture, it would actually have an effect on um, uh, the public, and more, more importantly, the government uh, and in their important positions of power. So he um, uh, he's like a a cross between like a Gandalf and a, a an established architect. So the idea is, is that he has an opportunity to come to Winnipeg, which at the time was destined to be the Chicago of the North, and he uh, decides to take his life work to in, in, imbue these lost architectural principles in the building's design. And those principles revolve around uh, 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 four um, uh, arcane subjects. One 
is numerology. The second is geometry. The third is astrology. And the fourth is alchemy. So at one level, you see a building. At another level, you see this other underlying language. And each one of these are part of and woven into the building's design. So um, uh, so if I were to like glean from one of them, that is, uh, is you know, truly remarkable. I probably would turn my attention to a room called the um, Lieutenant Governor's Reception Suite. And the reason is, is that it's in the far east of the building. It's a room that is only open once a year, which is uh, the time when the Lieutenant Governor, who is the highest appointed person of, of the Queen, um, uh, opens the, uh, the room as um, uh, as part of a New Year's celebration. Now, it turns out that room is built in the exact cubit dimensions of the Holy of Holies of King Solomon's Temple. So let's unpack that for a second. First of all, a cubit is an ancient form of measurement, which is from your elbow to the tip of your finger. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that everybody has a different uh, cubit, of course. Uh, however, the cubit that was understood um, in uh, the Bible and understood by Freemasons, of which this architect was one, was believed to be 14.4 inches. Very curious number because that's 144. It's 12 by 12. It's also the, the, the number of souls that are saved in the book of Revelations. At the end of time, 144,000 souls are saved uh, uh, with the coming of the Messiah. So the, um, yeah, in the Bible, with the, with the most meticulous accuracy in the book of Kings, God, who spent like one pair, two sentences creating the sun, the moon, and the stars, according to the book of Genesis, is like a really finicky uh, uh, an interior designer to the point where it's like, oh, no, 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 the holy of holy must be exactly 20 cubits by 20 cubits. Mm. And if you apply this unit of measurement, 14.4, in the interior of this room, uh, it is exactly 20 cubits by 20 cubits. So there's a bit of an aha there. That's curious, but it gets worse because in <laughs> biblically speaking, it, the holy of holies was also, as it is in the Manitoba Legislative Building, only opened once a year. And it was the time of the Jewish calendar called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, so rather curious that the highest appointed person of the queen, not of, of God, according to uh, uh, biblical speak, uh, only opens this room once a year. Now, here's this room built to the exact dimensions. Now, what you'd expect to find if this was a reconstruction of King Solomon's temple, the greatest uh, 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 embodiment of perfection in world architecture. Also, the only building uh, um, uh, magically revived by Freemasons in all of their rituals. Everything to do with Freemasonry has to do with the, the building and construction of King Solomon's Temple. So here's the, the Holy of Holies, mathematically uh, 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 without uh, dispute. But what's missing in this room, what you'd expect to find according to the Bible, is this remarkable chest called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you can look high and low in this room and you will not find it. So uh, uh, following the uh, uh, architect's breadcrumbs where he said not a single thing is placed in the building without uh, a higher intent. And knowing that he his father was uh, an, uh, uh, a well-known uh, theologian who taught our architect of the legislative building, the uh, uh, languages of the Bible, that's Greek, Hebrew, and Latin at a young age. 
um, I went back to, to the Bible, the book of Kings, and uh, there's a curious passage in there which describes that the Holy of Holies is in the and King Saul and the Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies, but it is veiled by an ornately woven blue curtain. Now, if you look at this room straight in front of you, as soon as you open the doors, there is an ornately woven blue curtain. So if you peer beyond that blue curtain and you look outside directly above that room, there is a Ark of the Covenant. That is a rectangular war chest flanked by two winged warriors. Mm -hmm. And so that to me was like, okay, slam dunk home run. The mm -hmm. room is a, a, a perfect cubit dimension. And what you'd expect to find the Ark of the Covenant is hidden in plain view. The, the moniker of the building hidden in plain view directly above that room. Um, and uh, so, and that's, that, that's just one of many elements of the building where it's kind of like slam dunk home run. This cannot be any other thing than this kind of like solving a New York times crossword puzzle. And there's no other possible solutions. You realize this is the solution. Yeah. So um, uh, anyways, uh, that's the uh, Ark of the Covenant concealed directly above the uh, uh, that room. Wow. wow. So you were in there uh, doing this, this research. Were you like, you had a tape measure, you're measuring these. Uh, oh yeah. Yourself? Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah I had, like that? I actually, for two years, I had carte blanche access to the building. Um, the premier doer, the, the premier at the time had, uh, and I had a letter from him that allowed me to go in the building any time of day and, um, and look at any uh, element. So there's a bit of a graffiti in hidden parts of the building that uh, uh, show that I'd been there, I think it was like 2002, um, <laughs> inside the interior dome. I, I walked all the way up to, you know, the foot of the golden boy. I went throughout the bowels of the building, directly beneath the pool of the Black Star, uh, which is another like totally yeah. jaw-dropping, remarkable part of the building's architecture, perhaps the most interesting by far. Yeah. Um, and uh, so uh, every now and then, uh, you know, I'd flash this letter, um, to uh, uh, look at different parts of the building because even this room, the one I just mentioned, is um, uh, the premier has access to everything in the building except that room. That is the official office of the uh, uh, the Her Majesty the Queen's appointee. Wow! Wow! And you've toured the Queen as well. I did. I, did. I had. Um, uh, that was that was one of the most uh, uh, remarkable of all, all the tours I'd ever give I, I had ever given because her it was Her Majesty's entourage and some scholars from Oxford that were bringing a um, a cornerstone from Runnymede where the Magna Carta was signed and it was used in the laying of the foundation stone of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. So, um, uh, as I'm giving this tour, the the um, her official title was the Lady of the Bedchamber, which is a fancy royal way of saying um, the, the BFF of the Queen. And uh, she was uh, intrigued throughout and we became friends. And uh, she, she sort of uh, uh, curated part of the tour herself because she knew about um, Masonic Mysteries and told me later that uh, her great grandfather had been initiated into Freemasonry in the area called the Pool of the Black Star. Um, so yeah, just 
the building is, you know, 5,000 years of architecture squeezed into um, um, what we, you know, belovedly call the home of the golden boy. Gosh, man, I did a photo shoot there like early, like 2000, 2000 and like, I don't even know when that was, but I moved like 99 after that, 2000, probably like 2003. And yeah, yeah. clueless at that time to all of that knowledge. But wow, you know, you mentioned the golden boy and going up there. So who does the golden boy actually represent then? Ah, now you hit the nail on the head because that is the ruling arc of the entire building. Um, the figure is the glistening golden boy, otherwise known as Hermes. Now, why Hermes, you might say? You mean the messenger of the god, the FTD Floris guy? Uh, yes, that Hermes. Now, Hermes is, um, I did mention those four secret principles, numerology, geometry, astrology, and alchemy. And all of them, are disciplines that were ascribed to the father of all occult philosophy and secret knowledge, Hermes. So Hermes, as we see as the kind of guide of souls, the only figure in the Greek pantheon that is able to descend into hell and come out of hell. It's only Hermes among the 12 in the, in the pantheon. And why? Because he was known as a psychopomp and because of this notion that Hermes was both a messenger and a guide of souls, that uh, an entire body of literature surrounds him, and it's known as uh, Hermetic philosophy and related currents. And part of this uh, vast corpus of, of material is the notion that um, uh, that we, uh, um, as, as sentient human beings, have uh, profound gnosis. It's a Greek word that means inner divine knowledge, and that, that part of our our, our quest of self-discovery is reawakening this inner spark of knowing and that this inner spark of knowing allows us to be like gods. And so the, um, uh, uh, this, this um, body of wisdom was uh, heavily sanctioned uh, by the church. But uh, during the medieval period, the uh, figure of Hermes was seen as the, the font of all philosophy. And if you ever go to this great cathedral in Siena in Italy, a dazzling cathedral that when you walk into the, the front nave, you go there on the front at, at the first step before you see the entire biblical display from creation, Adam and Eve to um, the Annunciation is the figure of Hermes right there. And in Latin, it reads the father of all wisdom and knowledge. And it was the idea that um, uh, this had all been ascribed to him. And uh, the the Egyptians referred to the same figure as Thoth, the god of, of writing and, and magic, who weighed the scales for the pharaoh um, in his journey in the afterlife. So, yes, colloquially, uh, oh, it's just a naked boy. But, <laughs> oh, no, this is Hermes. And Hermes is the, the, the most important, probably the least understood and most important of all uh, classical deities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen Hermes as, you know, the old wizard type figure. I've seen him as Stoth and, and Mercury, the messenger, I believe, too, right? But I haven't seen him as the, mm -hmm. the young golden boy, though, before. How did you put that together? Oh, well, uh, you just have to look at uh, Jim Bologna's classical statue of Hermes. Um, and, uh, and there he is. It, uh, the, that, the golden boy that we see, that we think is unique, is actually a, an almost direct copy 
of an Italian artist named Gian Bologna's version of Hermes. And what's curious about it is that this artist is presenting the, 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 the figure of Hermes at a time in the Renaissance where Hermes was rediscovered. It was believed during uh, the, uh, the great age of um, enlightenment uh, and, and the Renaissance, to get this, the, which literally means the rebirth. And what were what was what were they being reborn to? Lost ancient wisdom. So what was lost and recovered during the Renaissance was this body of wisdom attributed to Hermes. And so the the, the Platonic school and the schools of higher learning, by which the Renaissance art or artists had all studied, was the belief that uh, even before Abraham and Moses, there was what's called the Prisca Theologia, the first wisdom, the first philosophy, and it was described. To Hermes, and so he was sometimes shown as uh, the boy, and sometimes he's shown as this ancient man, a, uh, a wizard. Um, but the idea is that he was able to move in the in, in all of these dimensions. Uh, uh, it, he was attributed with the title Hermes Trismegistus, which means Hermes, the thrice greatest one, the the person who was a uh, uh, master of, uh, you know, the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, and the heavenly kingdom. And um, in a lot of uh, uh, alchemical literature and the emblemata that we see in alchemy uh, shows Hermes in this light as this uh, youthful uh, um, uh, god that is guiding the alchemists towards the philosopher's stone. Mm. Mm, the philosopher's stone. Interesting that he's on the dome too, because in other buildings, the capital, the Vatican, that is the pregnant belly of Isis symbology, right? And that's the rebirth mm. of Osiris Horus, eh? Um, is there an obelisk that uh, faces opposite of that dome at at the legislative building? Uh, there is at the capital? There is, yes. Yeah, there sure is. There, uh, well, there, there's actually, there were supposed to be two um, on the, on the, um, uh, the northeast and northwest grounds of the building. And one of them to, is crowned by the bust of, uh, of Cartier. But those in the initial designs were to be uh, two Egyptian obelisks. And if you look down what uh, we uh, uh, call the Mall of the, or Memorial Boulevard, there is another um, obelisk-like uh, um, um, uh, cenotaph that frames the entire memorial towards the, the, the golden boy. And um, in, in later research, I, I, I showed that the, uh, in fact, the Capitol Mall in Washington, D.C., which is, um, begins with the link, if you were to look at it in, in a uh, east-west device, it's the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Obelisk, and then crowned by the U.S. State Capitol, which mm -hmm. was actually built by um, um, another British Freemason named Benjamin Latrobe. Uh, is that that same superimposition in the design of the mall of the Manitoba Ledge is um, not the Lincoln Memorial, but instead the same people that carved the Lincoln Memorial, the Piccarelli brothers, this Roman ar uh, architectural family, they come to Winnipeg. Yeah, the same people that carved the Lincoln Memorial come to Winnipeg to carve the statues of the ledge. <laughs> like it was considered a serious project uh, um, at the time. Uh, in, in Winnipeg. So yeah, so uh, Lincoln Memorial, the obelisk or cenotaph of uh, the First World War, and then crowned by, uh, in our case, the Manitoba Ledge. Huh. 
Huh. And you mentioned the uh, 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 pregnant figure, figure of ISIS. You don't have to look much further than the figure that crowns the dome of the U.S. Capitol building. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I'm not familiar with that. I know the dome's there. Yeah, it's What's on the crown. The dome is there, and and the lady is known as I think it's Lady Liberty, not the same late uh, the Statue of Liberty, but uh, the the accoutrements that she wears, uh, and several of the other uh, devices that she gives off is actually as a um, like a, a, a Native Americanized version. Oh. Uh, so. Um, yeah, I forget. Uh, uh, I remember I, I'd been invited to the Capitol building by former um, a U.S. congressman uh, who was a two-time presidential candidate, and he was certain that there was something to be understood about the Capitol building. And he said, "Well, you've done this one. Let's take a look at that one." And I, I was fixated on the on the, the figure on the dome because um, at that time, and I, I was really enchanted by the um, uh, extraordinary uh, archeological site in Manitoba known as Tai Creek, um, which belonged to the, um, uh, well, we don't know who who were the architects of that, but it's um, this petroform rock location. So at that time I was, there was imbibing heavily on uh, Native American wisdom and knowledge. Mm. So I thought that it's curious that figure uh, uh, Lady Liberty, you'd expect her to be, it, she's completely Native Americanized. Hmm. Wow, we'll have to look that one That's up. That's interesting. Yeah, you know, and both mm-hmm. like both the Manitoba Ledge and it was the the Capitol. They were both they both submitted like a contest to design mm-hmm. the building, and it was both you know the uh, but then rejected all the entrance, I believe. Right, like I think Thomas Jefferson had a hand in the Capitol picking the uh, the architect out or the design oh, out. Yeah. Um. I recall. Yeah, well, art, yeah, Jefferson what was actually a very good amateur architect. Um, and he he I think he wanted to have a hand in in the planning of DC, which ended up going to another French architect named uh uh um L'Enfant. And he the 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 notion was that um his Pierre Elliott on uh, L'Enfant, but he looked to bring uh, paradise to the capital or build what they referred to as the Republic. It was very much uh, 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 um, imbued in the environment of, of the rebuilding of the Roman Republic and even the site of the capital. Uh, I think the reason it's called the capital, it was that it was, it was monitored after the Capitoline Hill in Rome where the Temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus um, was the most important uh, 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 deity in the Roman pantheon, um, is that they were, the idea for the placement of the capital was to mimic in some degree, the temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus. And let's just take it a step further because if you go inside the capital, I mean, this is a little segue, but it's worth noting. If you go inside the capital, most remarkable thing you'll find there is in the rotunda. And my first experience of it, in fact, it gives me goosebumps, uh, was so jaw-dropping in, it, in, its, uh, uh, in, it, in its power and, and majesty and, and actually um, kind of morbid awe is inside the uh, rotunda, you find a, uh, a visual statement of the 
uh, the power and might and subjugation of the indigenous people from the, uh, you know, from Plymouth Rock to the baptism of Pocahontas. It's so clear. And you could look at it in in the form of a kind of as a continuous diorama. And as you're looking at these massive canvases that show the 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 uh, conquest, the absolute conquest of the, the the first peoples of America, it ends with uh, uh, a framed image called the Baptism of Pocahontas. And what's happening in that image, and uh, 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 this makes my blood boil, is a um, is like the high priest of you know christian majesty from the you know a, a, a figure of like of uh, uh like the church of england with a scepter and this light of awe of, of god's light peering onto uh, pocahontas who uh is been baptized so this this baptism of pocahontas with her her family like in the darkened part of the canvas and some i think even a few of them are like having an extra digit like on their toe or uh, of a finger which was a way of showing that they'd been uh, you know that they were actually dehumanized that they'd had you know they were vulgar and needed to have the civilizing might of christianity so it begins with abject conquest destruction 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 ah the most beautiful specimen a uh, most holy uh, 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 image pristine image of uh, uh, Native American sovereignty, Pocahontas, being baptized. So we've won. Now, directly beneath that, above on the dome, if you look at the oculus of the dome, is a remarkable mural uh, called some, um, uh, I think it's a fresco, actually. Washington, is it? Is it called Apotheosis of Washington, is that correct? Exactly, the Apotheosis of George Washington, which is a Greek word that means the God-making, the God-making. Of George Washington, and and it's like they could not be any more uh, 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 pronounced in this image because what you see is George Washington in full uh, uh, um, uh, godly regalia sitting on a throne. Yes, George Washington in a toga sitting yeah. on a throne, and surrounding him in the orbit of the Oculus is the twelve cabinet fit, uh, uh, officials, and above each one of them is a representation or the uh, 11 sorry is a representation of the uh, uh, that particular god within the pantheon so uh um uh, hermes is directly below the minister of finance because hermes controlled finance athena was directly below the minister of war and so because she was the goddess of war so each one of the of the pantheon are represented by uh, the cabinet of, of Washington. And there he is in all Zeus Zeus regalia as a divinity. Kennedy. And directly below, below that is where George Washington was supposed to be buried. And if it wasn't for his mom, I think he, he uh, his mom, his wife, um, uh, uh, yeah, he, he, that's why there's a crypt beneath uh, the rotunda is that that was supposed to be the resting place of George Washington in the yeah. same way that, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, so that I didn't know that that part about Pocahontas. I knew about the George Washington mural, and um, it's interesting that they had that light of Christianity down there in Pocahontas, keeping others dark while George Washington's up there with the old gods, you know. Well, totally, yeah. Doesn't it say right on the U.S. government website that? You know that it wasn't a stick; it was established for like pagan gods. Like there is, there is no Christianity. Yeah, well, that brings us into uh, 
the new Atlantis, Manly P. Hall's new Atlantis. And part of what he says is building the new Atlantis is building it with the old gods as Atlantis, the gods that they worshiped in Atlantis. Mm -hmm. So Zeus mm -hmm. and Apollo and, and, uh, and then Osiris, Isis and all those as well. And, um, and that painting of Washington basically becoming divine, the apotheosis of Washington, um, and sits in the pregnant belly of Isis in the dome there, right? And so it's kind of him being reborn as the Horus Osiris character, right? Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, Manly P. Hall was a very interesting and a researcher. Uh, he, he was Canadian. Most people don't know that. And he wrote the secret teachings of all ages when I think he was like 23 or something like it's like... Wow. remarkable to think that uh, uh he put that together uh, at at such a young such a young age um and he had a he had a he had a um a great affection for the secret destiny of america the notion that uh, um uh, america by providential right and some divine order was meant to be the way shower of the world and he even evokes um i, I mean this a, a legendary apocryphal tale that there was a mysterious stranger that stood up during the signing of the Declaration of Independence that uh, exclaimed in the audience hall in Philadelphia, sign that document. And Manly um, uh, P. Hall attributed that figure to the most mysterious, um, most wondrous of all legendary characters um, from the uh, um, uh, from the French Enlightenment um, by the name of uh, Saint Germain, the Comte, the Comte de Saint Germain, and oh. this, uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, oh, ascribes that figure to him. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the way I think I read it in uh, Secret Destiny of America, he leaves that questionable. He doesn't answer who that figure was. So maybe later in his work, he attributes mm -hmm. Saint Germain, huh? That's interesting. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where? So I, I was. Uh... Who was the other man? Uh, do you know, what's your uh, take on um, Francis Bacon? Uh, well, I mean, sorry, can you repeat that? I said, well, your, your take on like, it would like your thoughts, like with uh, Francis Bacon's- um, the, the association that uh, Manly P. Hall believes that uh, uh, St. Germain is really uh, Francis Bacon and that, or that Francis Bacon authored the works of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> the authoring the works of Shakespeare, um, or you know, the fact that it uh, could be very well Saint Germain. Uh, yeah, I think that's um, I, I think that's been um, routinely disputed, and and for good reason. Uh, but um, uh, I, I haven't explored too much into it, other than the the, the mountain of evidence is against such a claim. Um, although. It, it does raise eyebrows to think that um, um, just the very character of, of Shakespeare and just as I've, I've gotten older, I've uh, returned to the sonnets. And uh, I mean, this is this puts like this, the, the Psalms uh, in, in the Old Testament to shame in terms of their their prowess and poetry. Um, so uh, it's, you know, we can ascribe some mysterious char uh, characteristics to uh, Shakespeare, but I think um, he was a man, um, and it was not the uh, Comte de Saint Germain. But Comte de Saint Germain has definitely intrigued me, and he's uh, uh, 
he's the, the main character of uh, an NFT puzzle game that I'm working on. Uh, uh, so yeah, uh, well, perhaps we'll do another uh, interview about that. Yeah, they will have to get into into depth with that. Um, the other, you know, speaking of um, mysteries and everything else, and other cities copying, you know, um, all the symbolism and everything. You got on an incredible journey with Astana mm-hmm. in Kazakhstan. Let's hear a little bit about that. Okay, so that that was like um, the the Hermetic Code in reverse. So I, the Hermetic Code was an effort of deciphering a real Masonically design a building imbued with these uh, 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 deeper allegorical messages. Uh, Astana turns that entire program on its head and says, just in the same way you could encode, because part of the, the, the process of deciphering is seeing that somebody, an author, encoded something. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the case of Astana, I decided to um, not uh, uh, decode a, you know, a Masonic template, as I did with the Mantle Ledge, but encode an imaginary utopia. So Astana is very interesting to me because... Um, it, it, it comes with the same kind of, or, it's almost like an origin myth that uh, um, it's just uncanny the way it happened. So uh, let me just take you, take you through it. I was uh, preparing a graduate course at the University of Manitoba on uh, a subject that I was fascinated in, I still am, which was the notion of utopia, of building paradise on earth. And uh, the, the class was called From Atlantis, uh, Plato's first utopia, the, 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 you know, Garden of Eden of all utopias, to Astana. And that was the name of the class, Atlantis to uh, Astana, the capital city of Kazakhstan. The reason I did that was it's, at the, it's the latest planned capital. It uh, um, uh, was built on a master plan. It was meant to be a showpiece for uh, and a billboard for international investment. And um, uh, so as I'm researching this uh, um, uh, for my class, I noticed that um, there is this wide uh, internet claim that uh, Astana is the Illuminati capital of the world. And I thought that was, okay, wait, <laughs> wait, what? Um, so um, uh, every tab in my computer screen was leading down this nefarious web that uh, uh, Kazakhstan's new capital was this Illuminati capital. Now, I, I my, my doctorate was in secret societies and architecture. So I thought, hmm, the, uh, uh, I, 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 that this is worth exploring and completely out of the blue at the same time that I, that uh, like within minutes, no embellishment of, of making this, uh, uh, of seeing this association. I had a call from the chief protocol officer of Manitoba. His name was Dwight McCauley. And he said, uh, Frank, would you, we'd like you to come in to give a tour to the ambassador of Kazakhstan and his wife. They both have PhDs in history. And we think like you're the, the, the perfect guide. And I was like, wait, wait, Kazakhstan? <laughs> Every time I can, wait, huh? The government? Is that Illuminati? like the government asking me that the same government official that asked me to tour the queen? It's like, ah, we've got this. And I thought, okay. <laughs> Stop the presses, Astana, Illuminati, Astana, Illuminati, like every tab in my, my <laughs> screen is reading this. So uh, I said, okay, absolutely. But on one condition, before we give the tour, 
I'd like to uh, have breakfast with him first. So uh, we agreed. So we meet at the Port Gary Hotel. And uh, uh, I've talked about this, sto this story before, but this is what happened. Uh, I just extended my hand to him and I said, Ambassador, nice to meet you. I know what you're doing. And he said, <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, nice to meet you, Dr. Albo. Uh, this is my wife. Uh, what, what, am, what am I doing? I said, well, your nation is doing what every other great nation has done since the dawn of time. Pretty good intro. Yeah. I, okay, you got my attention. Um, okay, and what's that? I said, you're using monumental architecture to announce you've, ar you've arrived on the world stage. Uh. And he said, yes, that is exactly what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And I said, but you're missing something. And he said, okay, pray tell, what are we missing? I said, you need a foundation myth. And he, and he replied probably what you're thinking right now, which is what is a found, what do you mean foundation myth? And I proceeded to tell him that all great civilizations from the dawn of time have had a foundation myth. It's at the heart of world civilization for 5,000 years. It marked the new order of things, whether it was the Exodus myth of the Jews or the founding of Rome, named after Romulus and Remus, or as we were just talking with Manly P. Hall, the manifest destiny of America, the notion that America is providentially chosen to be the way shower of the world. So I said, all this alien, strange, bizarre architecture, which has been given the, the uh, created this mystique that it is an Illuminati capital ne uh, 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 needs a foundation myth. Otherwise you couldn't tie these buildings together. And he said, oh my God, that's a great idea. <laughs> Who's going to do that? And uh, I said, I am. And uh, so that's what started my, my interest in uh, Astana is uh, just by, you know, it was like a kind of discovering design. And so um, I went to visit the capital. I've been there about eight or nine times. And he said, well, we're having our, our, uh, our uh, um, July celebrations, or I think it's in June, actually. It's the, it's the birthday of, of Astana. Uh, why don't you come? And uh, I said, I, absolutely, I'd be delighted to. Now, uh, mind you, I was supposed to be teaching the summer course uh, from Atlantis to Astana. And I was like, oh, no, 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 I got to do this. Uh, the, the, the rabbit hole is upon me. So um, uh, I, I went there and... Um, uh, you know, with this, this this brash claim that somebody needs to write a foundation myth on on the uh, on the capital, and it, it didn't actually the penny didn't drop until about three or four years in. I knew I, I, I just implicitly, like kind of like a bloodhound sense, a kind of Sherlock Holmesian uh, uh, form of induction to say there's something I think myth is at the heart of this. And let me just preface this for a moment because uh, 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 the, the, the very notion that myth is synonymous with fiction is not the way I'm describing myth in this case, nor is it the way I, I, um, I give it value in, in the book Astana, because myths are not just the fables of the gods and the, the, uh, 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 the, the war in heaven. They are a major part of every aspect of our imagination. They appear in psychology, the very notion that Freud begins his psychological uh, uh, quest with the myth of Oedipus. It's in art everywhere. It's in literature, tattoos, philosophy, film, architecture, most definitely. So the idea among actually uh, Freud and Jung is that myths reflect our most primordial desire. That's why we need to look at myths because they, they un unlock for us 
who we really are at, at a deeper level that they can seal like a higher wisdom and order of truth. So the uh, um, uh, 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 myth is extraordinarily powerful when it is aligned with architecture. That if you take these two ingredients, myth plus, plus architecture, you've got all the ingredients of weaving a new notion of statecraft. So, and that is exactly what the, the, the first president of Kazakhstan sought to do, is that he said, we're going to create these buildings and these buildings are going to recreate us. So the Kazakhstan emerges out of the fall of the Soviet Union, 1991. It's the state that was the least likely to succeed. It inherited the fourth largest arsenal of nuclear material. It was the lowest order in uh, being able to success among all the other stands. And the uh, uh, first president takes a huge gamble. He's like the, uh, you know, love him or hate him. He's like the Tom Brady of world autocrats because he knew that I, if I've got a chance to put the, uh, uh, my new country on the map, I have to do it using architecture, symbolism, and the imagination. And these are the most powerful tools for governing the mind and reforming the world. So. He begins with this, and then the architects begin consciously and, even more importantly, subconsciously going back to ancient myths and fables. The one that uh, uh, is the centerpiece of Asana is a building called the Baitira Tower, and it is the like ground zero. It's like the um, uh, the place by which all time exists. The, the, the academic term is the axis mundi, the place between heaven and earth. And the Baitiric Tower is a story about the tree of life. And everything about this tree of life is about uh, the awakening of this new state. And um, uh, so, uh, 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 and there are other things. I mean, there's a giant glass pyramid, there's a, there, there's a giant UFO, there are three buildings in particular that uh, uh, clearly evoke a kind of Masonic lens. But what um, uh, uh, I found enchanting about Astana is that this, this centerpiece building, the, the Tree of Life building, is one of the oldest stories in world history. It was formerly called the Tale of Itana, not Astana, the name of Kazakhstan, but Itana. And it's a Sumerian tale that um, uh, uh, the gods create this city, this city of virtue. And in this city, they place a tower. And in this tower, there's an eagle and this eagle rises up to heaven and it's on the back of an eagle that, this, th that the new city would be formed. And throughout uh, um, uh, Astana, there's a massive eagle fetish, or you could call it a phoenix. It's everywhere. It lines everything on the mall. It's in the presidential palace. It's in the presidential park. Uh, so I had the beginning, the rudiments of a myth, but that's not enough. It's not enough to just show some symbols that, that, that evoke something that was ancient and told in myth. What um, you need to have to create an, uh, a foundation myth is a narrative. And um, uh, the narrative actually came straight up from the belly of the earth. And uh, the, the area of modern day Astana and the whole area of Kazakhstan gave birth to the, the three ingredients that were, that were essential to the rise of civilization. And those are uh, Indo-European language, the domestication of the horse and a wheel and axle. And what I argue in the book is, is that um, uh, Kazakhstan, 5,500 years ago, unknown nomads in the middle of the steppes 
had developed these three fundamental ingredients that were important for the rise of Egypt and Mesopotamia. What do I mean by that? Well, you cannot have civilization without language. And the mother trunk of all language is a species called Indo-European. And Indo-European language is uh, uh, where Latin comes from, the classical languages come from, Sanskrit in India and even Greek are all part of this mother trunk called Indo-European. So if there was an ancient tale, an ancient myth, a mother myth, then it had to have been told in Indo-European language from nomad to nomad and passed on. That was created in the regions around where uh, modern day Kazakhstan is. So I was like, ah, ingredient number one. Ingredient number two is that in order for people to, uh, and, and ideas and philosophies to cross-pollinate, today we, we use the internet. But in the ancient world, it was the horse. The horse is like the world wide web of the ancient world because it allowed you to travel vast distances and see cultures in a period of a day and to uh, cross pollinate with those cultures. And the domestication of the horse happened in Kazakhstan and ultimately is um, the wheel and axle. So if you want to look at the, the, the bedrock of all claim of empire, it is the chariot, it is the pharaoh, the king on the back of the chariot being ridden by horses. That's the real war standard of the ancient world. And whoever had a chariot with a wheel and axle with domesticated horses, those are the ones that won in, uh, uh, won in the trial of warfare. So silently, creatively, in the middle of nowhere, today, modern day Kazakhstan, that's where these three innovations came from. So I, I tell the story that secretly, 5,500 years ago, these mysterious nomads come up with these three ingredients, which we still live with today. And today in modern day Kazakhstan, three great uh, 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 lessons are being told to us as being imbued through this architecture. So you may see a, a, a pyramid, you may see this bicheric tower, you, see, you may even see this all seeing eye, which is clearly there in the architecture. Mm -hmm. But what the architecture is really telling us is a solution to the three greatest problems of our time. So I, I argue that the three greatest problems of our time is um, uh, planetary sustainability. We need a planet to, uh, uh, to survive. We need to uh, ensure there is no uh, um, uh, uh, violent warfare through uh, nuclear uh, armament. And uh, we need religious peace. And that's what all the, the, that's the, that's the song of Astana. The song of Astana is to denuclearize, to have a, 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 a harmonious religious planet. And that's what's happening at the apex of that pyramid. It's like one thing to say, oh, there's a pyramid. How, how Illuminati is that? It's just like, wait, wait, wait. But why did they build the pyramid? And they built the pyramid, which is called the Peace of Palace of Peace and Reconciliation, is that at the apex of a giant glass pyramid, you cannot make this up. World religious leaders meet from around the world at the top of the pyramid to discuss world harmony. And that's why they built the building. I mean, that's like, I mean, you couldn't make it any more Illuminati S than that. And um, when, when, and, and there's another building called uh, um, the Nazarbayev Center, which is in the shape of a giant all seeing eye. That's exactly what it is. It is an all seeing eye, it's a blue all seeing eye. Um, uh, there is the legacy of uh, Kazakhstan to uh, rid the world of nuclear weapons. And why they did that 
and why they're the world leader, the quiet world leader in denuclearization is because um, they were the site by which the, the Soviet Union uh, for many years, maybe like 40 years, had detonated nuclear weapons. So when we think of the awe and horror uh, of uh, Hiroshima, 2,500 times that payload has been uh, uh, unleashed in Kazakhstan. And they're just absolutely horrified by this. And uh, there are a, a great deal of deformities in certain parts of Karaganda as a result of it. So when they inherited this nuclear arsenal, and the world is looking at them in 1991 and saying, what is this rogue nation going to do with this arsenal? They did what no one expected. They disarmed and lead the charge on that. And where they lead that charge from is from a building, which is in the shape of an all-seeing eye. So um, it, it's it's you could call it Illuminati in nature, but much deeper than that is this myth. And the myth I wanted to tell is that... Um, I wanted to encode that there is a peaceful future found in uh, uh, this Illuminati uh, uh, um, uh, cityscape. And this peaceful future is in our imaginations to relive. And, uh, and I took it a step further by placing a puzzle within the book that whoever solves it would be awarded uh, a, a prize to go first class to visit Astana, probably not a good time to do it now, um, uh, some US dollars to spend and just seven nights in a five-star hotel, uh, all to experience the city uh, up front because I was totally blown away by it. I was expecting to find the, the homeland of Borat and uh, instead what I found was one of the most remarkable uh, uh, projects of engineering and wonder ever conceived, it might not be on par with Dubai, but in terms of its its narrative order, it sure is. Yeah. And nobody's cracked the code in the in your book yet. Huh? No, but no one has cracked the code. And what I uh we released a recent copy uh at uh at Riscon in Las Vegas. And what I what I promised in this recent copy was that there would be a new prize up until the end of the year. And that is a, a single Bitcoin. So whoever solves the prize, uh, and if you have a copy of the book and you decipher it, then um, uh, you will be awarded a single Bitcoin. Saying there's a chance. I'm gonna, I'm gonna dive into <laughs> there's a, Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There is a chance. So, uh, and, 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 and here's the deal. I didn't just throw, put in the, put in the, um, uh, 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 puzzle because I was trying to be cute. I put in the puzzle because once it's solved, you'll understand the, the meta narrative behind why myth is important and why, uh, uh, um, uh, you'll have a whole entirely different reading of the book. Mm, yeah, I'm just saying, I'm going to have to go over this with a fine tooth Like, like those 3D puzzles that just all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> and then suddenly you're like, ah, that's what it really is. Yeah. So, well, this book yeah. is a beautiful piece of work. The photography in here, some of the extra artwork in there, really well done. So what do you think it is that uh, Hollywood made out Kazakhstan to be, you know, just kind of this Borat, Bor Borat mm -hmm. backwoods, backwoods yeah. area? Why do you think you they know, did that? You know why? Because it's part of an age-old typology of Kazakhstan, which has been largely understood more in the language of myth than reality. 
even in the time of the ancient Greece, the land of, of, of Kazakhstan was called the place of Hyperborea, this place where people uh, uh, never die. Uh, and then in uh, uh, the Middle Ages, there was another description of this enchanting area, which is not east and it's not west, okay? Because we, we're largely framing, we largely frame world culture in Western and Eastern, and Kazakhstan is neither. Kazakhstan is absolutely central. It is, it is, it is Middle Earth, as it were. And um, so, uh, you, uh, I, I don't think there was any any great level of gravitas that uh, Sasha Baron Cohen put into making um, uh, uh, his homeland uh, Kazakhstan. But I think it's something deeper that uh, it's been largely misunderstood as a land of, uh, uh, and even today that it's some, you know, uh, um, uh, great plant, uh, uh, new center uh, of the Illuminati. But I, I, I use that kind of like as a sphinx to kind of go, ha, huh, you think it's really this place of, uh, of Borat, or you think it's really the Illuminati capital world. It's actually something much, much deeper and not only much deeper, but, uh, um, uh, 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 in it, evoking uh, uh, a forbidden body of wisdom of ancient knowledge that's encoded in myth more than anywhere else. So, uh, um, you know, for me, what, what, what inspired me, what actually the light bulb went off for me is that I had all these disparate parts. I had uh, uh, domestication of the horrors, I had the, 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 the language piece, I had all this amazing architecture. But what uh, uh, was the glue that brought it together what, um, actually happened um, well, through the Oxford Inklings. Is, is that, does that literary circle uh, mean anything to you? Oxford Inklings, not familiar. The Ox Oxford Inklings is the most important literary group that ever existed. And uh, they were, uh, it consisted of like, you know, some of the brightest minds of the age, J.R.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, author of Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, and the entire Chronicles of Narnia. And the Oxford Inklings actually gave me the, uh, 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 the light bulb as to what I could do with uh, uh, Kazakhstan, because what they did in this pub called the Eagle and Child Pub in Oxford is they thought about very deeply the power of myth. And they they saw that we that the 20th century, the greatest traumas of the 20th century was not the First World War and Stalin and Hitler. Oh, no, 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 no. The greatest trauma of the 20th century, the greatest lie of the 20th century was the myth of materialism. They believe this was the most hideous claim that there is no supernatural order to the universe mm -hmm. and that we are being imprisoned by this world of physical facts, devoid and divorced of any metaphysical truth. So for them, they thought very deeply that the real myth was materialism, uh, that there are three dimensions, five senses, four walls, and that this, this incarcerated us into not uh, uh, using the most powerful tool that we have at our disposal, which is our imagination. So what they did was, is they founded this literary circle to explore the, 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 uh, um, the notion of myth and, and imagination. And then they used that as a solution to what they identified as the three greatest traumas of their time. For them, the greatest traumas of the 20th century were disenchantment, alienation, and materialism. So they said, how can we ameliorate these traumas? How do we ameliorate 
disenchantment. Well, we have to make people enchanted. How do we dis uh, 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 a better alienation, that is making people were so individualized. We need to create a, 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 a group identifying a, a way of, of bringing people together. Well, how do we uh, uh, um, correct trenchant materialism? We need to open people's imaginations to something greater. So the line, the witch in the wardrobe, but all the works of the Oxford Inklings, the greatest minds of the 20th century, is they use myth to combat these traumas, combat these great, uh, as a solution, as it were, myth and fantasy as a solution to the greatest traumas of, of, of our time. So when you're reading, uh, 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 say, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or let's let's say Lord of the Rings, what you don't know, but Tolkien definitely is doing this, is that the entire story is a Christian story. Tolkien was a deeply committed Roman Catholic. It's it's a veiled Roman Catholic theology, and many scholars of Tolkien have identified this. And furthermore, with C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis's books, the entire series, The Chronicles of Narnia, consists of seven books. Those seven books are each one of them a reference to the seven planets of medieval cosmology. C.S. Lewis was a medievalist, and he believed that something happened in the medieval world, which we lost, which was the idea that we are connected to nature. And that there are these celestial orbs that can speak to us. And even though he he he, he wasn't like you know uh, uh, romantic in that sense, he actually was initially a diehard atheist. He was like, "This is all fiction. The whole story of Jesus is a myth. The whole story of any religion is, is a myth." But then, when he was awoken by by Tolkien to that the power of myth, that myth was more powerful. That that the real myth is materialism, and that that our imaginations can break us out of this trauma is that he writes the, the, the Chronicles of Narnia and on, and, and on the surface, you see this story or Frodo and the quest for the ring. But the meta-narrative of those stories is to inculcate in our mind that we are enchanted, we are not alienated, that there is a higher order of truth greater than materialism. And so they looked at the 20th century, they said, here are the three problems. And if you want to read a great book, the most important book on, on, on C.S. Lewis on this subject is called Planet Narnia by um, Michael Ward. And what he shows, proves, is that the seven books of Narnia about the seven planets of medieval cosmology, if you read Prince Caspian, it's all about the moon. If you read Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's all about the power of the sun, 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 sun. Uh, 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 the other books are on uh, Jupiter. It's all about Jupiter in veiled guise. And, and the notion of Jupiter. That, uh, um, and so that's when the light bulb went off for me. I was like, wait, 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 wait. If these guys identify three problems of the 20th century that they can correct through myth, and uh, uh, this is where I got ahead of my skis, I was like, what are the three greatest traumas in the 21st century, our century, that we need to correct? And I was like, okay, what are the three greatest traumas? Well, nuclear war the sustainability of the planet, and religious uh, uh, strife. So, so then I looked to the buildings to say, buildings, do you tell this story? And <laughs> jolly be gone, they did. <laughs> they were. The, the pyramid is telling me. It's, you think I'm just a pyramid? No, no, no. I'm the palace of priests and reconciliation. And every three years, world religious leaders meet here to discuss religious harmony. And you see me as an all-seeing eye. I am not an all-seeing eye. I am Frodo sending you on a quest. And the quest is to denuclearize the world. 
And so that's why Astana is a tote. It is the reverse of the Hermetic Code. Hermetic Code, deduction, 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 proof. Uh, uh, Astana is all about induction. It's all about induce, is seeing, encoding something that isn't there. And then freakily enough, the universe provided uh, uh, the canvas for me to write it. Uh, yeah, frequently, frequently enough. Yeah. Have you found that since you've been on this journey, you said, you know, you, you joined, um, you know, the, the Brotherhood and, you know, you you had the browsers open and, and things have just transpired. Does that seem to have been amplified since you've been kind of following this inner guidance of, of some sorts and things kind of... Uh, no, Freemasonry had no impact on me whatsoever. I just saw it as an old stodgy boys club that had completely lost the plot. But what it did open my eyes to was the idea that uh, um, architecture could be ritualized. And if you ritualized architecture, that's where the power is. It's not uh, 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 the building itself or the construction. We largely build just concrete boxes. And uh, instead, uh, uh, Architecture is an enormously powerful tool that the very image of, uh, of, of a master craftsman is the image of an architect who lays out a plan. And that if you use architecture that is imbued with these higher values, whether it's uh, uh, sacred geometry, the idea that the Manitoba Ledge and other buildings are, are, are um, built and designed according to the golden ratio, is it possible seeing that the golden ratio is in everything, nature or thoughts or fantasies, a, a, a nautilus? Uh, 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 shell is that if you use that same language of design in building, can those same impacts of harmony and order actually quietly and almost uh, 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 um, subconsciously affect us towards a, a higher truth? So that's what uh, uh, the idea of Freemasonry did for me is that the idea that can I look like the same way that an anthropologist, a, 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 a cultural anthropologist looks at you know, the Guayani Indians of South America, you have to eat with them, you have to learn their language, you have to partake in their rites, and then you could see things through their eyes. And so Freemasonry for me was a way of seeing architecture in a ritual way, is to seeing it in a salvific way. And that's the whole heart of Freemasonry. It's not about the aprons and the get up, but no, no, no. It's all about the idea that the one discipline not wooden shoes or making wine, but architecture has the power to reform the soul. Whether it's true, I don't know, but it's a it's a great idea and it's a very intriguing experiment. It's interesting, very interesting. And you know, we're on the on the topic of discoveries and everything else. You know, we don't want to take up too much of your time here. Um, but your latest discoveries, anything new that's been going on? You know, um, has there been any uh, recent findings with your work in, uh, I believe it was White Shell, Manitoba, mm -hmm. with the stones you mentioned earlier, what's transpired since mm -hmm. then? Well, uh, that, that's been a great love affair of mine for almost 20 years when I was a lowly uh, a graduate student in the Department of Anthropology at University of Winnipeg. I took on a fellowship and part of my fellowship was to uh, decipher the field notes of Dr. Jack Steinbring, who uh, had founded the Anthropology Museum, and he'd spent his entire life as a, uh, a rock art nut. Um, and he'd spent, uh, 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 his life's work was looking at these ancient petroform sites, mainly in, uh, um, in the area of the plains, um, 
uh, Canada. And what these are, are uh, stones that have been arranged in various different forms of design. Uh, they're typically zoomorphic, like in the shape of a turtle or a snake. But the, the mother site, the site of all sites for, for Jack Steinbring, was a site in the White Shell uh, called Tide Creek. It's not the one that you visit uh, often, which has been greatly vandalized, called Bannock Point. But this site is perimetered by a giant 12-foot uh, barbed wire fence placed there by Jack Steinbring. So he spends all this time on, the, uh, on this site. He leaves, retires somewhere in, in uh, um, I think, Wisconsin. And his field notes on this site are left in a box. Uh, and uh, as, so I petitioned the, the, the president at the time. I said, well, I think I, I'm really into stone and architecture. Maybe, can, you know, maybe we need to catalog and accession this work. So um, I spent a summer doing that and, and found out that um, uh, this ancient rock petroform site was not just an assemblage of stone, but was designed with very sophisticated astronomical considerations that this site was was like north america's stonehenge and no one knew anything about it and it was so important that steinbring had perimetered it by a giant fence to protect it and um and so that at some point my my the last work i'd ever write would be on this site and so in order to to understand it better uh i learned from uh, 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 several indigenous elders and my, 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 my greatest, uh, uh, patron, uh, friend and guide by far was, uh, uh Dave Kershane Jr. who founded the Turtle Lodge. And so he, in, uh, in, enveloped me into the, the wisdom of the Anishinaabe people. And, uh, um, and so since that initial discovery about 25 years ago, saying, oh, my God, here's this here's this remor remarkable cultural site that could be uh, uh, built 800 years before the time of Christ that was designed by these astronomical considerations was not in the design of turtles and snakes, which happened much later, but something way more interesting. And it's the largest, oldest rock settlement site in all of North America that no one's ever heard about that if I was going to do that site justice, I wanted to do it not as a, you know, Western academic and interloper, but as, as profoundly as possible, drinking from the wisdom of, of the people of that area. And, um, and with that, I slowly and by invitation been uh, inculcated in that knowledge, um, whether it was from the Medeoin or understanding the ancient rites of, um, of the Sundance or the Shaking Tent Ceremony, um, but others, and uh, uh, and it's it's. I, I finished the book. Um, I, I'm not happy with it right now, and so I have it in 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 a draft form. Uh, and I uh, and my 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 friend has dearly departed. Uh, Dave Kershane, the Turtle Lodge still still operates and works in uh, um, in in Saugeen First Nation, but. Uh, um, there, there's this uh, classical mandate. I forget. I think it was Diogenes who said, "You know, if you've written something really important, put it, put it away, and then look at it seven years later." So I've written it. Um, it's done. Um, I, I feel it's missing something. I don't know what it is yet exactly, um, but I will return to it when when I do. It, it'll. Uh, it just doesn't feel right yet. It just feels, you know, like. Uh, you know, a definitive guide to petroforms and what it really should be is um, I, I think something much more personal and um, 
uh, I just, you know, my, my son says it's not ready yet. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Interesting. Can you describe these stones a little bit? You call it like the Stonehenge of North America, like in size and, and, uh, okay. So, uh, so Tide Creek is, uh, it's nine acres in size. It could be actually much larger. Um, uh, according to some of uh, the elders, um, is that Steinbring artificially encircled the site, which should be much, much larger. And one of the areas, one of these large foundation stones that is part of this collection of stones uh, is the site where you open up the spiritual world to the site. Um, And there's a very specific way that you need to approach the rock, uh, 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 the supplication to the rock, the time that you go to the rock, how many times you hit the rock, the things that you say. Um, So, uh, so maybe it's been artificially enclosed, but um, by uh, archaeological considerations, it's um, there uh, like around nine formations, and these formations are in the, the form of one in particular is the most identifiable is a large thirty um, uh, foot uh, di- uh, a circle in diameter, in the center of which is a woman. Uh, she. Uh, now is pregnant with a stone, but that stone was actually added later. So we know that that is not original to the design. It's been the least disturbed of all archeological sites of this size, this kind anywhere in North America. Um, And then there's a series of of, uh, serpentine stones that connect each one of these formations. And uh, the largest one is, it's almost like a landing pad. It's about 120 feet. Uh, the stones vary in size from um, movable. Yeah, I think it's 118 feet. Um, uh, and, and it has two long runways. Uh, it faces, uh, and then it has uh, an area which has um, um, been described as the shaking tent, which is part of an old Medeoan rite, which closely uh, uh, dovetails with Freemasonry, by the way, total sidebar, but. Um, where uh, the elder, the oracle goes within the tent uh, and then uh, uh, their voice changes. So does their demeanor and questions are asked of the oracle as it was in, in Delphi thousands of years ago where the the, the utterances that came from the, the priestess were like unknown and untranslated, but you needed a scribe that understood how to translate it. So this shaking tent rite was believed to have taken place at this particular site. Uh, um, and, um, and so it's, it's curiously in the same size that a shaking tent, uh, um, um, uh, tent is, is, is designed. And that's on this, the, the large, the, the larger site, I think it's called the, um, the causeway or something. It's the most important one, uh, it seems. And then there are other, uh, sites, um, uh, that are, uh, you know, bolder shaped sizes, sizes that you couldn't easily move. And we know the date of them based on the, the the lichen, the moss that grows on it. So, but what hasn't happened there is like, um, uh, and you can't do like carbon-14 testing that you could with organic materials because this is just like moot stone. But what, what uh, I will say is that uh, uh, it could be the stones themselves that conceal the deepest mystery because uh, stone in Native American culture is not the same way that we see an inanimate object, but that the ancient grandfathers incarnate in stone and need to be awoken from the stone. So um, so maybe, just maybe, the site just hasn't been ritualized yet. It hasn't been properly opened and placated uh, to reveal its deeper mysteries. 
I don't know. All I know is I wrote it. It's done. There's a treatment, but it's it's not. It, I, I don't know. It just you know, you can just feel it. You know, you hear the piece of music. You're like, ah, it's off. <laughs> Goodness. Well, I'm I, sure you'll be led to uh, your answers on that and what you need to add to it. Finish it. We'll be looking. Mm -hmm. at that. Yeah. Well, ho hopefully sooner than later. I gosh, seven <laughs> years. <laughs> Wait, seven years. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Wow. That's incredible. Uh, it, it'll come out. It'll be at the, it, it, it uh, I, I mean, uh, I am working on something that ties all three of um, uh, my books together, which is based on deduction, induction, and abduction. And I think that this third book is going to have something to do with uh, abduction. I believe that um, it, uh, imagine a way that we could learn things that just by not we, we, everything's so compartmentalized, like you, you know, you could learn at a subject and you become like world expert on this one subject, but what does that have to do about anything in a, in a greater way? Uh, so uh, I, I feel that the, the books need to be gamified. I, 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 I haven't figured it out yet, but I think that we're leading to such a digital age that, uh, We'll need to, I don't know, yeah. bring the literature back to life. Not in the metaverse, but I don't know. I don't know yet. Yeah, yeah. not not in the metaverse. No, no VR plans. <laughs> no, no. Do you have any other any other plans coming up? As far as you know, you you were talking about um, like with Bitcoin earlier. Well, you know, um, after the um, uh, the Astana book. Um, I was contracted to write the definitive biography of Satoshi Nakamoto. And Satoshi Nakamoto is the pseudonymous founder and creator of Bitcoin. No one knows who this person is. So talk about foundation myth. So my, my interest in foundation myth led me to that figure. And uh, I thought, well, how is it in a, in a modern age with such a, a revolutionary as it is movement that um, the world's first decentralized digital currency, Bitcoin, has created and all the progeny like Ethereum and Monero and countless other things like from NFTs to Metaverse and Web3 is that, um, so this figure has enchanted me and uh, I've got a kind of uh, a sense for discovery. And um, so I set out to uh, uh, write this biography on Satoshi and instead um, I read his only published work called The White Paper. It's the only document you should read about understanding uh, uh, cryptocurrency. This is like the, uh, I used Magna Carta earlier today, but it is the Magna Carta of all cryptocurrency. It is a nine-page paper published in 2009 by Satoshi Nakamoto, who then dis disappears. And it's called a peer-to-peer -peer system of transaction, uh, Bitcoin, uh, and it, a way of being able to transact in, in a digital world by which no need for an, uh, a third party, a, a government intervention, a bank, any intermediary as it is with Visa or PayPal or anything else, that Bitcoin is a way in which I can send value anywhere in the world as easily as I can send an email and nobody can intercept that. And not only that, but my, my rights and digital identity are protected and so are theirs. So, um, uh, uh, I, I thought, okay, this is going to take me eight months. I'll have a draft. I'm going to unmask the myth of Satoshi. He's a real person living in grandma's basement. And he's like some pimple neck, pimple headed nerd. But instead, uh, no one knows who it is. And it was something in the white paper. I remember exactly what it was. It was a single line in the white paper 
that opened me up to uh, becoming a kind of uh, 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 an advocate and, um, and consultant on, on Bitcoin in particular. Um, and Satoshi writes that the financial system of the future, I'm paraphrasing, but the financial system of the future will not be based on centralization and trust, which is what all of our monetary system is based on. We have trust in the government, trust in the bank, trust in these institutions, and they're all centralized. If they want to stop you from using your money, your money does not belong to you. It's in the bank, but it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the, the, uh, 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 um, uh, a codependent relationship that we have with the bank as, as our administrator. Uh, and so we live in a world in which we have to trust that there is a single issuer of our currency. Um, and Satoshi says, no, that is not our, the future of uh, 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 human beings. The future of human beings is that our financial future uh, will be based on decentralization and mathematical proof. And that's what Bitcoin is. It is a decentralized mechanism of transaction anywhere in the world by which you do not need to trust anybody because the underlying properties of the system are mathematical and mathematical at such an astronomically impossible to corrupt way that it would take like all the power of every particle and every sun on every corner of the universe and each one of them being like a supercomputer and you would never be able to uh, 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 um, uh, 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 corrupt Bitcoin. And it's and it was, uh, it was, there was no CEO of Bitcoin. There's no governance of, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a governance of Bitcoin through the, uh, um, but there is no, it's all volunteer based. And it, it's current thing now as being a, you know, highly volatile digital asset that you could trade and send to somebody else and make money off of is just the tip of the iceberg. The underlying technology is, um, it's a, it's a game changer. It's like the, what the internet did and what cell phones did, Bitcoin's going to do with every way that every electronic device communicates with any every other electronic device. And we're going to witness it. It's a powerful revolutionary movement. And that's been my, 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 my greatest interest of, of today. Well, I don't trust the government or the central banks or any of those. So <laughs> I'm rooting for it too. Yeah. What do you think about like the central banks coming out with their own digital coin and trying to enforce that? On this uh, God. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. It, 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 it's just impossible to subvert um, um, uh, Bitcoin because it is not just a payment system. It is a network. It's a global network. And it is and here's here's the most incredible thing about uh, Bitcoin in particular, is that it's a technology that for the first time in world history is greater than, enormously much more powerful than the kings, the dukes, the earls, the governments, the uh, 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 autocratic tyrants of the past. And the cat, the genie is already out of the bottle because it is a completely revolutionary mathematical proof system, which cannot be replaced by a central digitalized uh, uh, currency because it disrupts the entire establishment of banks and governments as trusted intermediaries. It is tamper proof. It is open. It's public. And ultimately, I think it represents the, the death 
of the entire method of commerce that we know today. We'll, we'll just in the same way that you uh, uh, a kid today would look at a rotary phone and say, what the heck was that? Uh, or what is that? We're gonna look at uh, uh, debit cards and banks in the same way that sometime in the future, uh, uh, our kids' kids are gonna say, what was that? And you'll, and you'll say, that was a Visa card, you know. <laughs> what did you do with that? Well, we carried it around, and it had this stripe, and we had to. We're like, yeah, I think that's crazy. No way you did that. Oh yes, and it was issued by the bank, by by the government, and the government was in collusion with the bank, and the banks were too big to fail, and we just continued to bail them out, and we had this fictitious thing about called, uh, um, uh, you know, the national debt supply, which you know. Uh, so, anyways. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Wow. 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 Thank you so much, Frank. Mm -hmm. It's been an incredible yeah. talk. But I have one more question, or just one more of your of your thoughts. I'm going to run this by you real quick. Being that we're both from Winnipeg, we're talking about Hollywood a little bit. Here's mm -hmm. the deal: The Simpsons. It's always kind of in this mystery about The Simpsons, kind of predicting everything with all their episodes and many, many times they've picked on Winnipeg. So I've heard that Matt Groening is a Mason. And as it, oh. turns, as it turns out, uh, Grandpa Simpson is apparently, according to Matt Groening, is apparently from Winnipeg. <laughs> what? Oh my God, that's uh, uh, his real I, I, I have, I, I have, come to appreciate that there are these elusive uh, periodic references to the Sims, uh, Winnipeg in the Simpsons. And it's always disparaging. Like, uh, I don't know, there was that billboard, you're entering Winnipeg. Um, uh, we were born here, what's your you know? excuse? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we were born here, what's your excuse? And, se and several other times. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, Winnipeg's really odd. Uh, be, uh, uh, to me, the most interesting things about Winnipeg, or uh, uh, and maybe Simpsons is just part of that, is that uh, 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 Tolkien's metaverse. Uh, uh, um, uh, now I'm blanking on what what that's called. Uh, the Cimmerillion was compiled in Winnipeg by his grand, great grandson, who's a Winnipegger. Uh, so, you know, the greatest fantasy genre of, of literature is uh, compiled in Winnipeg on Oak Street or something. But uh, that perhaps the most important figure of the 20th century was a Winnipegger. Um, you know, James Bond himself, 007. Uh, his name is William Stephenson. Uh, that when Ian Fleming wrote James Bond, he uh, references that James Bond is a fiction, but the real guy that it's based on is William Stephenson, a Winnipegger who is a double spy. Um, uh, and that, uh, you know, and, and in the 60s, Winnipeg was the center of some massive psychic battle between uh, uh, the, the children of, uh, of uh, Michael, the Archangel Michael and, and Lucifer. I don't know if you know that story, but they're all, uh, and these are demonstrable. Uh, um, and then there's the uh, uh, very sad case of um, of uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name, the boy who's uh, uh, who had um, an early sex change, um, um, and then oh my gosh, it's like every first year psychology student will uh, uh, learn learn the story of these two brothers that were born at the same time. Uh, they were twins. 
and one of them in a routine circumcision had his like penis singed off. And so his parents at a very young age, um, based on uh, 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 medical research, had him uh, raised him as a girl. And the experiment was that you had to, you had to, uh, and they had like John Hopkins University was all over this. Uh, um, uh, you had to never admit to him that uh, this was part of an, uh, a circumcision gone wrong. And uh, it, it's it's the most incredible story that uh, uh, anybody um, uh, uh, will reference about, I can't believe I'm blanking on it, these two brothers. Uh, and that's the story out of Winnipeg. So, uh, you know, the, you know, the guy behind the atomic bomb or um, uh, who, who self-sacrificed uh, in the lab um, and jumps on, uh, you know, this nuclear fission is an, uh, another Winnipegger. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, Winnie the Pooh and other things, but, uh, the Simpsons just can be part of that mystique, of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. a long winded thing of saying, uh, yeah, maybe Simpsons are picking up on, uh, or Hollywood. I have no idea. Yeah. yeah. 007. It comes from John D right. The, uh, that is correct. Yeah. Ah, well known. Yes. He would, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Good stuff. Very cool. Oh, uh, wow. Well, we kind of, we kind of got to blow your. And John D was promised most of Canada as part of, uh, uh, you know, when, when he had he had presented to the Queen the, the very notion of, of a British Empire. The very notion of a British Empire was the brainchild of John D. Um, and and uh, you know the court astrologer of Queen Elizabeth, who he envisioned as Astrea, this um, uh, primordial goddess returned to bring a golden age of truth for the British Empire mm. and uh, the several experiments he did with the Enochian alphabet and talking to angels for 30 years but mm. he what's curious is uh, he's got a connection to Canada in that as part of his will he was supposed to be promised most of British Columbia and, huh. and uh, I forget what it was yeah that's an interesting connection there with Winnipeg then hmm. huh yeah. That is interesting. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Frank. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I think we went over our time here, but uh, I'm sure you'll cut it up properly. It fascinating though. Yeah. Appreciate everything. That Absolutely. Really and hopefully we'll be able to catch up on another mm -hmm. one and dive deeper into Bitcoin. So thank you. You got it. Thank you once again. Take care. Appreciate your time. Yes. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Ciao. Ciao. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Becoming Unfuckwithable. If you believe you're unfuckwithable, go ahead and share this podcast.